So as a kid, I shared a room with my brother. I had the bunk beds, and I was always the bottom bunk. And they were the type of bed that were, um, they were held, the mattresses were held with those mesh wire things. You know what I'm talking about? Today I call them a taco bed because if you lay down on it, it folds over like a taco. Like if I slept in one, I'd probably never get out again. Um, but, you know, as a kid, you don't notice those things. And so at some point when I was still young, 12, 13, something like that, I found a quote that I really liked. And I was, since I was a bottom bunk guy, I, uh, I, I took it and I tucked it into the, the underside of the top bunk so I could look at it. And then I found another one and then another one. And soon I had all this collection of like these quotes from writers and philosophers and leaders and Bible verses. And soon the whole thing was just like covered. And so I would stare up there and get my inspiration. And one of the quotes um, that I had tucked up on the upper bunk was this. It's, it's a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. in 1963, a speech he gave in Detroit. I love this. It goes like this. There are some things so dear something so precious, something so eternally true that they are worth dying for. And I submit to you that if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. That still stirs me. I love that. But then right next to that quote, tucked up under the bunk, I had right beside it a quote from uh, Henry David Thoreau, Walden, For some reason, even as a teen, I could see that when I read that quote, I had to read this next quote in the same breath. It goes like this. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. There is something so dear, so precious, something so eternally true. If you found it, you should lay your life down. You should die for it. This is what we long for. This is what we seek. This is what gives your life weight. This is what gives you reason to push through when life is hard. And it's almost always hard. And yet, the mass of people never find it. Or or is it that they don't want to find it? Or is it that they find it, and they find it really hard, hard to believe? Whatever the case, it seems that People don't lay down their life for something. And so somehow we end up in leading these quiet lives of desperation. And so even as a like a 15, 16 year old, I would find myself staring up at the bottom of that top bunk and caught just in this angst, in this tension between those two quotes that I so desperately wanted something to die for. I think, I think I do. And while I've changed and matured over the past 30 years, my, my views are much more nuanced now, and I have thankfully gotten over my teenage angst. Yeah. I can still feel this. I have found something worth dying for. I have. I, I know something worth dying for. And yet, after all these years, I find that I'm still not very good at dying. Like, I hesitate. I don't want to. I don't want to die. So I cling to my life. And in clinging to my life, I find myself living a life of quiet desperation. So today, we are going to look at a passage in Second Timothy chapter 2. It's a text that I've carried with me for years. It's, um, it's part of me. 
I've ingested it. I, I've, I've taken it in. I've carried it along every season of life. I've read it and reread it. And each season, I seem to discover something new in it. And it lies at the heart of this tension for me. It is a call to a call to come out of a quiet life of desperation. Don't you don't have to live like that. But in the call, it's also a call to great sacrifice. It's a call to die for something. So when I first decided to preach this, I thought. Um, I thought I was preaching it for you, because you need to hear this. <laughs> but God's made it clear to me that this sermon isn't for you. It's for me. Who knows, maybe it's for you too, but it's definitely for me. So our text today is 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here's the setup. The Apostle Paul, he's in prison and he's been in prison before. We know the Apostle Paul, that's what he does. He gets caught and gets thrown in prison, right? It, this happens. But this is not just his usual imprisonment run. Uh, he says in chapter 2, verse 9, I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. And that word criminal is not the usual word for prisoner or criminal. It's seriously dark. It only occurs one other time in the New Testament when Luke is describing the crucifixion. And he says, Jesus was nailed to the cross between two criminals. That word, um, to get technical for a minute, the scholar William Mounts explains, this word refers to criminals who were so hated that they are punished by arrest, torture, feet and hands cut off, and eyes gouged out, to quote Mounts. So Paul's Roman citizenship actually protects him from being dismembered like this, from having his hands and feet cut off, but it does not protect him from having his head cut off. And when we pick this book up, we have every reason to believe, and the Apostle Paul has every reason to believe, that this might be the last letter he ever writes. He, he uses the words in chapter 4, For the time for my departure is near, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And this is not the words of someone like planning their, their visit to the Jersey Shore this summer. So he writes this letter to Timothy, possibly his last letter ever. And Timothy is currently leading the church in Ephesus. Timothy is this younger man that Paul has taken along with him along his missionary journeys. He served alongside Paul. And remember, Paul, um, Paul did not, he never got married. He never had kids. So when he calls Timothy my, my son, his spiritual son, like this really is as close to family as Paul has. And now before he dies, he would like to see his spiritual son one more time. He says, do your best to get here before winter. But there's this little matter of uh, the fact that I've left you in charge of this big church. So let's talk about that. Um, the, the church, Ephesus, if, um, if, if you knew your geography at all, this is Asia Minor. So Ephesus was kind of the leading church in the leading city in this big region of the Roman Empire called we call Asia Minor. It's um, right in the center there. But it wasn't just a leading city and, and a leading church. It was really um, a, a, a group of churches, uh, like a network of churches in Ephesus that then radiated out through like Sardis and Philadelphia, ever heard of it, and Laodicea and all these churches, this network of churches. And Timothy was left there to be in charge of Ephesus, yes the churches in Ephesus, but that was influencing all this network of churches in like the leading city and the leading region outside of Rome. This was the place, the center of the Roman Empire outside of Rome. So this is not a small task. Timothy was placed there not to pastor some small church, but to lead a movement 
this rapidly growing, chaotic, beautiful, troubling movement of churches across this region. It's a massive job for a young guy. And if, if, um, if this movement isn't to drop into sheer chaos, then when Timothy is pulled out of that to go visit Paul, there better be someone else in leadership stepping up. Which brings us to chapter 2. This is where Paul is to give Timothy and us some perspective on this big, immense mission of God that we find ourselves caught up in and how it might cost you everything, but how it's worth it. So it starts like this, 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You then, my son, my son, he loves him, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Literally, be made, is past, be made strong in the grace. It's not something you do, it's something that's done to you. Be made strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now this, this is not some type of rhetorical flourish or some like he's throwing on some extra words. Let's throw the word grace in there. Please hear this. Everything we're about to say, everything that Paul says moving forward is predicated on, is built upon this. If you miss this, then the rest of the message is going to sound like some motivational speech or like, you can be the greatest, you can be the best, you can be the King Kong banging on, no. All right, so yes, okay, put on your headphones, watch the montage, you go, you go do you, that's great to pump up, but that's not what Paul's doing here. Paul is doing something radically different. This is not just a self-help or motivational speech he's giving here. Consider what it means to be made strong in grace. The Apostle Paul here, he seems to think that grace is not just some theological idea about God's unmerited favor towards you, though it is that. It's not just some declaration God makes over you, like he speaks over you, you're forgiving, you're my beloved child, though it is that. But grace, when that grace, what God has done, his love for you, when it penetrates your heart, when it breaks into you, it does something to you, it does something in you, it becomes a force or a power that transforms you from the inside out. So the grace that declares, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you, that's true. When that penetrates your heart, That exact same grace, and I quote Titus chapter 2, that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-righteous or self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That if you let grace penetrate your heart, it makes you strong. You can can break old habits. It frees you from fears and insecurities. It frees you to say no to things that used to control you. It allows you to courageously sacrifice in ways that once seemed unthinkable. It can give you the strength to live for something, even if that means dying for something. So the grace that is in Christ Jesus, this inner spiritual unseen reality can make you strong make you be able to do things that you never thought were possible, make you do things that the others just, they can't do. But I think we struggle to think through, like, how does grace motivate and drive and get, make us strong in that way? So maybe it's helpful to see this in contrast, the way other unseen things make us strong. So I can't say that I was ever like a, a fan of tennis. I've only played like a couple times ever and never got good at it. And I don't even know how they keep score. They're like, 40 love. I'm like, I love you too. Ah, okay, love, whatever. So, um, but I was uh, a few years ago, I was bumming around in Barnes & Noble, the one over on Sweetsford Road there, and um, on one of the bestseller tables, there's this uh, autobiography of Andre Agassi. 
And if you're not like a child of the 80s or 90s, you might not know who this guy is. I, I wouldn't have known because I'm not a, a tennis fan, but he, he's, he was the world's greatest tennis player and this cultural icon in the 80s and 90s. And still today, I guess, is making headlines here and there. Here's the deal, though. You pick up his book, and on the opening, curiosity is just like, okay, bumming through. I open up first page. This is, I'm quoting the first page of his autobiography here. My name is Andre Agassi. My wife's name is Stephanie Graff. We have two children, a son and a daughter, five and three. We live in Las Vegas, Nevada, but currently reside in a suite at the Four Seasons Hotel in New York City because I'm playing in the U.S. Open. My last U.S. Open. In fact, my last tournament ever. I play tennis for a living, even though I hate tennis. Hate it with a dark and secret passion and always have. So that's the hook. Andre Agassi, the greatest tennis player of all time, who's devoted his life to it, who's become better than everyone else in the world, who's spent years and hours and blood, sweat, and tears to become, to get to this pinnacle. He has become this, and he hates it. How? How does that happen? How do you devote your life to something and, and he doesn't hold back? Just like little further later, I think page two, he makes it really clear that he hated tennis, but his father loved it. And the only way he knew that his father would love him is if he was winning at tennis. So soak this in. His greatness in tennis was born out of his great need to be loved by his father. His great success is the trophy of his great insecurity. He became the most valuable tennis player in the world because he did not feel valued by his father. I don't think Agassi's alone here. Like shame, ambition, insecurity, all these unseen forces, need to belong, fear of rejection. These are powerful, soul-shaping forces that can make you strong, unbeatable, the greatest, the very top, can drive you to extraordinary limits. So much so that it's almost an equation. Like if you show me someone who's super successful, super disciplined, can defeat everyone, I can show you usually someone who's got this gaping wound in their soul that they're trying to cover up. Not always, most of the time. Last year, I watched uh, an interview with Eddie the Beast Hall. Do you guys know him? He, he is um, uh, the first man to ever deadlift 500 kilograms. That's 1,102.31 pounds. Oh, half a metric ton. How is that possible? And so in this interview, he, he, he describes this moment when he did this. Um, and, and he was like, well, of course, you have to have the genetics for it. Or your bones just snap. My little bones, you know, like, I'd be crushed. <laughs> right? um, and you have, to, you have to train for years, decades of your life. But he says, but that won't give it to you. There's lots of guys out there with the genetics, lots of guys who train hard. But there's something different. There's something missing. And he, he explained what you have to do is there's, in order to go through that, where like your heart's beating so hard, it might explode. Where you, you, your, your spine might shoot out your backside. You have to have a psychological turn. So he met with a psychologist who said, he said you've got to get to a point where you're re um, releasing adrenaline just at the right moment. And the way to do that is you have to access the darkest fears, the deepest hatreds you have. I, I want you to look at his face here.
And that's what he did. His hatred and his fear were literally the source of his great strength. What do you think that does to a person? Well, I'll tell you what, it, it makes you the greatest in the world, the strongest in the world, and destroys you. You become the greatest person in the world, and you hate yourself, and you hate what you do. The Apostle Paul, he urges us to go a different way. He says, be made strong in grace. That what Jesus did for you, that, that vision of Jesus loving you and what he gave for you when you didn't deserve it, let that drive you, let that be your motivation, let that set you free from trying to save yourself, from trying to please others, let that remove the threat of being exposed or rejected, and let his great sacrifice drive you to do things that seem crazy and insane. Let that drive you to do what no one else is willing to do, to sacrifice everything so that you can be a conqueror, but no, in his language, more than a conqueror. You can be more than a conqueror, but it is through grace. It's through grace. Now, I will be the first to say that I am still trying to figure this one out. I have never been accused of lacking motivation. I have been accused of lacking grace. But it's clear. The Apostle Paul figured this one out. I mean, you just look at his life, and uh, he's beaten and cursed. At one point, they stone him, and they think he's dead. So they leave him outside of the city, and, and what's he then say? I consider our present sufferings not worthy com- to compare to the glory that will be revealed in us. So he keeps preaching, and they say, Paul, we're going to throw you in prison. They throw him in prison. You are now a prisoner of Caesar. What's he do? He starts converting all the guards. <laughs> And then he writes a letter to to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ. Paul, we're going to kill you. We are going to take your life. And what's he saying, Philippians? To live is Christ. To die is gain. Paul, we've taken everything you have. You literally have nothing. Everything, everything is gone. And he says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. But Paul, you have nothing. Your friends have deserted you. You have no, your churches are going awry. You own nothing. People hate you. And he says, uh, I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. Now, do you hear this? Do you hear this? This is not a weak man. He has no success, no worldly power, no platform, no political authority, no money, no armies. None, at times he has no friends. And yet he writes and he lives. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You hear that? Paul, where does the strength come from? How, how is it that you are unbreakable when everything gets thrown at you in life? When people abandon you, all this hurt and pain and literal physical pain, how is it that you keep going? He says, grace. I'm a man who's been made strong by grace. And he says, you're going to need it because the mission we're called on is going to demand everything from you. And these things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. 
So the Apostle Paul here, he's pulling on this uh, ancient rabbinic tradition when he says this. If you, for you Bible nerds out there, uh, in the in the Jewish oral tradition called the Mishnah, there's a tractate called Avot, which is just like the chapter of the fathers that describes this vision that you see throughout rabbinic tradition that even predates the rabbinic tradition. And this is where we get the language of like, uh, where we will find language of following Jesus, walking with Jesus, or discipleship. It comes from this ancient true Jewish tradition. And here's the vision. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, meets God, receives the two tablets, comes down, his face is glowing, right? And But when he receives these two Ten Commandments, like the, all the thou shalt nots, it's really, really important, even from ancient tradition, that this is not just something that you can just then hand off to someone. You can't email this to someone. You can't just teach it in a classroom. It's not just rules of do's and don'ts. It is how to live in relationship with, with God. In the Hebrew terminology, it's how to walk with God. So, so in Hebrew, the, the language is this. Um, you cannot simply copy this and hand it out. It's a way of life. It is a way that you have to walk. So in Hebrew, the word halak is to walk. And the collected teachings of the rabbis around like, how do we live this law? Is the halakha, the way. So you have to walk the way. In, in the Old Testament, this becomes the root metaphor for like life with God, how we understand God's law. It's not just a list of rules. It's not something you can email to someone. It's not something you can just learn in a class that Moses comes down and then he teaches Joshua, not just the content of the law, do this, do that. It's you have to walk this way. So you can't just learn Sabbath in a classroom. You have to enter into God's rest one day a week. You have to enter into, you have to feel his goodness. You have to let down. You have to enter in. And you can't just learn surrender from like reading a book. You have to go to the temple in the Old Testament and you have to offer up a whole burnt offering and set it on the offer and watch the whole thing be consumed in the flames and then smell the, the, the pleasing smell to the Lord. Ola is the word. As the pleasing smell goes up, that is saying that animal, I identify with that. That is your experience of surrender. You have to enter into it. You have to walk the way in order to experience it. So Moses gives this, not just the content, but the way to walk to Joshua, who's called to be strong and courageous, the exact same language that Paul will use to Timothy. And then Joshua comes and gives it to the elders of Israel who are then learning how to walk the way. This is how to live in relationship with God. So according to rabbinic tradition, this is how the tradition is passed on from generation to generation to this very day. It's not just a book or a set of rules to follow. It's a living relationship. You can't just know the content. You can't just master it. You have to walk the way. Now, this is going to become very, very important when Jesus shows up on the scene because Jesus is going to show up and say something that is pretty shocking in the Jewish world. He says, hi. I am the way. I am the halakha. If, if you want to know not just the content, but how to walk with God, follow me. I am the way. You have to do it in relationship with me. And this, this language is going to profoundly shape the earliest Christians. In fact, they weren't just called Christians when they first started. In the book of Acts, before they were called Christians, they were called the way. They were people who identified with Jesus, followed the way of Jesus, and taught people to obey all that he had commanded, like Moses taught Joshua, Joshua taught the elders. They passed it on, not just the content, but the way of walking with Jesus. They passed this on. Paul picks up this tradition, looks at Timothy, and says, you're next in line. You're next in line. 
what has been entrusted to you, not just some beliefs or some rules, but the way of walking with Jesus, following Jesus, being made strong in grace, that way of life, you need to entrust this to reliable, literally faithful people who will be qualified to pass it on to others. Now, there's a lot more in this verse. I could preach an entire series on this verse. But I think it's fair to summarize and at least make this statement out of this. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, this is what you find yourself caught up in. This is it. You are part of this great chain. We are called to be strong, faithful guardians of the way of Jesus who teach others not just the content, but how to walk the way Jesus walked. And this is absolutely core, central to the mission of God. So the mission of God, what God is doing from Genesis to Revelation, this is central to the mission of God. Now, I want to be careful here. When we talk about the mission of God, what he's doing from Genesis to Revelation in in human history, in our universe, it is so much bigger than like some discipleship program or some class we offer or some program you go through. That's not what, like the mission of God is we are stewards of creation itself and God is redeeming all things. So our and politics and ecology and technology, all of it, every bit of it is being redeemed to the glory of God. So your vocation, whatever it is, if you're a school teacher or a postal worker or an artist or a stay-at-home mom or see, whatever your vocation is, is part of God's mission. He is calling you to use where he's placed you as a steward to steward this creation until he comes back and redeems all things. But If we skip the part about following Jesus, becoming like Jesus, learning to walk with Jesus, and passing this on to others, our lives will be like a solar system without the sun. It'll lose what holds us all these things in orbit. It'll be chaos. So Paul, he presses Timothy and us on this point. He says, we need to join the court. We need to join this mission worth dying for but he addresses the fact that, well, you may have to die to join it. So he gives us three images here. Look at this first one, a soldier. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. So the first image he gives us is a Roman soldier. And if you were in ancient Ephesus, you would have seen them all over the place. And you would know he's referring to an active duty Roman soldier. And he's saying, you see how single-minded they are, how focused they are, how committed they are. You see that they would never get entangled in civilian affairs. So so I don't care if uh, if you got a major housing project, if there's an HVAC emergency, uh, if, if there's a personal trip or vacation you plan, I don't care if your firstborn son is about ready to be born. The mission comes first. Those things would never get in the way of actually doing your mission ever if you're a soldier. And then he gives us the second one. Similarly, anyone competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The athletes compete according to the rules. So, Here's a, here's a um, gymnasium in ancient Sardis, which is a reconstructed gymnasium from the time of the Apostle Paul, short distance from ancient Ephesus, in fact. Uh, ancient Ephesus would have had one similar, but it's still in rubble, so this is the best we can do for right now. To kind of, the point of saying the gymnasium in ancient Sardis or ancient Ephesus was monumental, one of the most important buildings in the community. Why? Because that's how valued 
that's how much value was given to athletics at the time. If you go to ancient museums across the Roman world, you will still find examples of what Paul talks about when he talks about the victor's crown. Here's an example from uh, the Archaeological Museum of Istanbul. There's three different examples of the crown that these athletes would be competing for. They're impressive. Here's one of my favorites. This is from um, uh, Athens. So the, these elite athletes, they, would, they sought to compete in like the Olympics, which you probably heard of, and the Isthmian Games, which was in ancient um, Corinth. But they had to, Paul says, compete according to the rules. The victor's crown, they do not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. But Paul here is not just talking about um, you got to follow the rules of the game. He's saying that when you, when you decide, when you want to qualify for one of these games, you had to commit for at least 10 months of your life to stop everything and abide by these certain, this, this athlete's regime, these rules of being an athlete that were much, much bigger than just rules of a game. The Stoic philosopher from this time, Epictetus actually gives us a taste of what it took to qualify for the Olympic Games. He says this, you must act according to the rules. Notice the same language Paul's using. Follow a strict diet, abstain from delicacies, exercise yourself by compulsion at fixed times and heat and cold. Drink no cold water. Not sure about that one. Nor wine when there's opportunity of drinking it. In a word, you must surrender yourself to the, to the trainer as you do to a physician. So I know you might think I'm an elite athlete, but believe it or not, I never was. <laughs> yes. But I do have, did have a window into this. The school I went to for high school uh, in the middle of nowhere, Farmville, Ohio, just happened to be uh, one of the leading wrestling programs in the nation. And I was on the wrestling team. Now, I didn't realize what I was getting myself into, but literally families would move from all over the nation to our little middle-of-nowhere, rural, terrible school district so that their boys, their sons, could wrestle in our wrestling program. That's how good it was. One of the top in the nation, like I said. And during that time, I got a picture. Like I said, I, I was never the greatest or the best, but I was among guys who went on to win NCAA championships. And I got a picture of what it takes to be like that. It is insane. I mean, it takes over your entire life. You have to breathe it. You have to want it more than anything. That wrestling coach, he really has a story where he was in the middle of a match. His shoulder got dislocated. He goes over to the coach, has him pop it back in, and then goes back in and wins with one arm. I'm like, it's not worth it. You're wearing tights and everyone's laughing at you. Uh. Farmer, the hardworking farmer, this is the third image, should be the first to receive a share of the crops. So in the ancient world, a huge percentage of the population would have been peasant farmers. And the difference between starving and surviving was two things. One, hard work, and two, the weather. You can control one of those, so you better get to work. So these are the three images Paul gives us. Um, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer. Like he wants us to think on these things. He, he almost certainly, just to give you context, he almost certainly isn't just pulling these out of the air because he uses these exact same ones in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he's writing to Corinth, another cultural center. And then we also find that if you read literature of that day, you'll find guys like I've already mentioned this, uh, Epictetus, his discourses, he mentions these exact same things when he's teaching on philosophy. This, what Paul is using here, are, is a pop culture reference. 
So like when I quote neuroscientists, authors, and occasionally Taylor Swift, I learned that from the Apostle Paul, okay? Yeah, so in particular, um, these popular images were ones that like the young hip people in cultural centers like Ephesus and Corinth, they would really appreciate. And like, we, like I said, we find these in Stoic philosophers and others. We find this in the popular literature. The point being this, Paul picks these images up though, and he's sending them through, first of all, a Christian lens. Like, be made strong by grace. Don't do it the way they do it. And then two, he's using a Jewish logic, um, vital. It's a how much more, how much more. That's the whole point of this passage. So if soldiers are willing to do this, if an athlete is willing to starve himself or punish himself like this, if a farmer is willing to work this hard for a piece of bread, how much more should you be willing to sacrifice your life for a king who gave himself for you? for a mission that is truly eternal. That's the logic. And then he leaves us with this phrase. He says, reflect on what I'm saying for the Lord will give you insight into this. This is the, uh, the Hebrew language of Haggah. It's to chew upon, meditate upon. It's the idea of a, a dog chewing on its bone that we're supposed to take this and ingest it. It's supposed to become part of us. That There's something in these, these images of the soldier, the athlete, the farmer that are essential, that, that are, we're supposed to make part of us, that we're supposed to carry with us, that God has something for you in these images. If you will just pause. And listen to him. So I've recruited a few experts to help us do just that. Men, come join me. So today, let's give these guys a round of applause. Yeah. So today we have a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Yeah. So um, Joe Salinas here. I, I know a little bit. I, I know you've. Um, a lifetime of service in the military, but uh, give us a, just a quick picture. Like, what did that? What did that actually mean? So, Paul, uh, I retired last year after 25 years of service in the Army, uh, and that was 25 years of Patty. Please, anyone who thanks me, you have to look at Patty first. That's 25 years of of mm. picking up the slack, raising five beautiful children, and, and just it was something that we did together. Couldn't have done it without her. Um, yeah. The majority of that was in Army Special Operations in what uh, what would be termed a triple volunteer unit. So everyone currently uh, in the Army volunteers to, to, to enter the Army itself. The second volunteer is to go to airborne school and jump out of airplanes. No one can make you do that. You have to, That's a choice you have to make yourself. Once you do that, then a world of opportunities opens up and different uh, career options and units uh, and organizations that you can pursue uh, that require another level of volunteering, another level of selection, another level of training. Um, and that is the course that uh, I pursued over 25 years. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. AJ. AJ here is, uh, he was a college athlete, uh, and I'll, I'll let you share here in a minute, um, a college athlete and then professional trainer for a while, and uh, he's giving me some advice. I'm working on it. So uh, we'll get there in a minute. So he's got a athletic experience. And then David over here is not a farmer, but he wishes he was. <laughs> Yeah, so much so that he bought a plot of land, built a house just so he could like grow something from the dirt. <laughs> like, yes, make things happen. I love it. So we're, we're going to, we're gonna, I've asked these three men to help us um, appreciate Paul's metaphors. What does Paul want us to see in this? So uh, let's start with Joe. Joe, you have experience, obviously, living like as a soldier under order. So give us a sense of like, what does it look like that? Yeah, what, what does it look like? 
So, Paul, even uh, just putting this uniform on, which I haven't done in a while, for it still somewhat fits, the, uh, it, it's brought back a rush of memories of just, just wearing the uniform. There's certain things immediately. One of the first things I told Patty when she walked is like, you know, you can't touch me. You know, uh, you really can't even hold hands. That's public displays of affection, which you're not supposed to do uh, in, in uniform. I can't hold babies. That one came in really handy. Uh, nope, sorry, can't, nope, can't do it. Uh, I can't even hold an umbrella. Um, huh. by regulation. I can't put my hands in my pockets because the regulation states that nothing shall protrude outside of your pockets. And some NCO years ago decided if you've got your hand in your pocket, your arm is protruding, therefore you can't do it. Um, more, more, uh, more personally, um, like I said, I, I, I did a, a tr the triple volunteer and then I kept doing it. Uh, I volunteered again and again and again. Uh, every time I, I learned of an opportunity that was to do something harder, uh, more intense. Uh, I almost felt an obligation and, and probably driven a lot by this deep sense of brokenness, answering the question, do I have what it takes? Am I enough? Uh, after volunteering and volunteering and volunteering, I found myself uh, eventually uh, kind of at the apex, the pinnacle of, of, of anything that uh, a guy like me could do in an organization uh, whose mission was to respond to a crisis anywhere in the world in 24 hours. So anything involving American citizens, American facilities, we were the first call. Um, mm. And living for, for 10 years in this organization, um, uh, where, where we would, uh, on alert cycles, we would wear pagers uh, that would go out, could go off at any time of the day after which you're expected to be at work within an hour. Uh, we kept all of our equipment, our gear in ready bags on shelves uh, and it was packed to go anywhere. So it had cold weather gear, desert gear. We never knew. We wouldn't have the time to decide what to take. So we took everything um, ready to go at a moment's notice. Uh, on our alert cycle, we had to ask special permission of the commander uh, to leave, uh, to drive more than an hour away from the base. Um, it, it defined uh, our entire lives. Uh, everything that happened uh, on the news, world events from 9-11 to uh, the attacks in Northern Africa to the rise of ISIS in Iraq and Syria, they weren't just headlines, uh, they were very personal because they would immediately mean that somebody, whether it was ourselves or, or someone we knew, was going to have to be mobilized uh, to take action. Um, and we lived with a constant fear, not of getting the call, but of not getting the call, of someone else going and doing the thing that we had trained and prepared for for so long. Hmm. Um, and that had other impacts as well. As Patty is reminding me that, uh, uh, you know, at when we were deployed, um, uh, things like uh, birthdays, wedding anniversaries, birth of a child, death in the family, um, you, you know, we'd have these conversations all the time. Well, Patty would say, well, aren't you going to be in it? I'd say, well, no, of course not. Uh, this, is, this is my job. Um, we, uh, we lived with a, uh, with, a, with a sense of purpose, uh, certainly a sense of pride. Uh, we knew that we were different. Uh, we told ourselves, uh, you know, we were different than the people that we run into in the supermarket or at the PTA or, or even the members of our own family. Um, we, were, uh, we were set apart and driven by that. Um, hmm. And I think sitting here, Paul, the one thing I have to say too is that I think having a very personal understanding of that metaphor that Paul's using, knowing what it means to live like that under orders, under that level of commitment, it is convicting me to say that I have never applied that uh, to my relationship with Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and that, I think, is, is, is the message. That's the point, um, the, what we're being called to by you. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Thank Thanks. 
AJ, so you, you talk to us. You, you've lived in that world of, of athletes for a long time. What, what's it like? Give us a picture. Give us some sense of why the Apostle Paul might be leaning into this metaphor, what you think he wants us to see in it. Yeah, I think the most important thing before stating that is, you know, Joe has his uniform on. I think we should uh, do a push-up contest. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Not with you. Maybe after the service. Uh. So, um, gosh, when I think about the success or performing at a high level from college athletics, um, if I could sum it up in three, I guess, areas, it would be um, having a desire to do it, having a plan on how you're going to do it, and then taking action and doing the activity necessary to get the results. Um, When I look back at my college lacrosse days, um, we broke top 20 in the country. We were undefeated my last two years. We won two conference championships. Super fun, a lot of great memories, but it did come with a cost. Uh, You know, from a physical standpoint, uh, my one season I had a broken hand, my another season I had a messed up ankle where I basically casted every workout, practice, and game. Um, from a time and physical standpoint, uh, we had our morning workouts, we had our morning practices, we'd go to class, um, then we'd have two to three hours of practices. The top performers, they're showing up 30 minutes to 60 minutes before practice, getting their skill work in. So I'm showing up 30, 60 minutes trying to keep up with them. Um, you know, now I'm burning literally thousands and thousands of calories. So from a diet perspective, you know, thank goodness for those unlimited meal passes, uh, meeting two breakfasts, two lunches, uh, big dinners. Um, and, you know, I'm in college and everybody stays up late, one, two, three in the morning. And here I am going to bed at 10, feeling like I'm missing out on some things because I have to get back up in the morning to, uh, to get my workouts in. So big picture, that's what it looked like. Mm. Wow. Thanks. Yeah. Thank yeah. <laughs> David, talk to us. Uh, g- give us a picture. Like, if, if we're, you know, th- trying to think through terms, you know what it means to take something out of the dirt, like make something out of it and how hard it is. Give us a picture, especially in that ancient world. Like, if we were to try and just take a plot of dirt and grow some wheat and make some bread, what would that look like? Well, so first you're going to need to uh, break the ground. And it doesn't matter what culture you're in. Breaking the ground is hard, uh, even if you have tools and implements and or animals. Uh, the ground, the ground really is pretty solid and it's hard to work. But in uh, it's my understanding in ancient Palestine, you in order for even to, you get to get into the ground, you're going to need to wait until the early rains, and the early rains will come around end of October or November. Uh, and if those rains don't come at that time, you have to just wait for it. You can't like get ahead of the rain and so it could be like december or even january before you get that uh, seed of course we're talking here winter wheat because it'll grow in the winter you started in the winter and in the palestine you would wait to the soil the rain softens that soil a little bit you can work it with a plow till it up and then you can broadcast it like you might do uh, grass seed or whatever um, and then after that, you uh, need to wait about 240 days. Uh, and during that time, you're doing all kinds of other farm work. You're not just sitting around waiting, watching it grow. But you do will, you will go treat it like your kids and watch <laughs> what you just planted grow. Um, and then after that 240, 240 days, you're going to need something. Uh, I've got one. I've got one over here, actually. Um, <laughs> you're going to need something like this. And uh, 
This is great. I love this. Actually, I've this been looking. This is, by the way, why we're going to have security for our children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've been looking for one of these forever, and my wife actually found one two days ago. It's amazing. I can't believe it. Uh, and uh, it's like an um, uh, environmentally friendly weed eater. And you don't even have to plug it up or anything, so it's great. Um, but keep in mind that, uh, you know, it's been a long time since you've harvested because it's been a whole year. And so uh, it's unlike the trainer that trains, you know, daily for, uh, a, you know, a race. You haven't picked this thing up for a year, and you got to pick it up and harvest, and it's going to be like a 12, 14-hour day, day, and you're going to be swinging this thing all day long as hard as you can. Um, but at least you won't be doing it alone because you're going to have your friends, your neighbors, and some family members are going to come over, and they're going to help you out. So all the people that love you enough to help you clear the land and uh, that you really love uh, are going to be working with you, and the more they work with you, the more you love them. Uh, you do have to remember the social distance, so you can't uh, get too close. And, uh, and then uh, after that, of course, uh, you know, the next morning you probably be really stiff, and you feel like you can't get out of bed, but then you've got to go help your, your neighbors, the ones who helped you. You're, uh, you're going to go help them clear, clear their land because of how much love you have for them because of what they've done for you. Mm. Uh, and then after all your friends and relatives that helped and all, uh, they all have their land cleared, and you got all the... Uh, and they, they stacked those, uh, the wheat stalks up and bound them up. You're going to uh, get together and go to, like... Um, a threshing floor, threshing party, basically, mm. just like uh, what Paul preached on in Ruth. And you're going to um, come, and it's going to be an incredible party where you thresh and winnow your wheat and celebrate the harvest. And it, it reminds me, makes me think of how heaven's going to be, really, when all of our um, brothers and sisters in Christ come together and uh, celebrate the harvest. Mm. Kind of like the most wonderful Thanksgiving you could ever imagine. Mm. Thanks, David. So we're going to leave the stage, and all I'm going to ask you to do is what the Apostle Paul asked Timothy to do. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into this. And I, I want to invite you to really take this time, the next couple of minutes, and just ask the Lord, If the soldier is willing to do that, the athlete's willing to do that, the farmer lives like that. And the point is how much more, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for you? If you would close your eyes, Jen's going to come out and play us a song, and then um, I'll pray for us and then leave you to it. Father, thank you that Jesus died for us and that he gave his life for us, and that we know this grace, we know this message. I pray that you'd speak to us now. And more importantly, Lord, that we'd listen. Mm.